Welcome to 2020 and welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Lewis and Ann are speaking with Steve and Andrew D'Angelo two of the most important players in the history of legalizing marijuana. Steve D'Angelo is a pioneering cannabis entrepreneur, activist, and author who has co-founded several iconic cannabis businesses and organizations from Harborside, one of the first six dispensaries licensed in the U.S., to Steep Hill Laboratory, an industry-focused cannabis lab, the Arcview Group, the first cannabis investment firm in the nation, and the National Cannabis Industry Association, legal marijuana's first trade organization. He currently serves as Chairman Emeritus of Harborside Inc., which is now a vertically integrated California cannabis company. Steve and Andrew talk about their latest focus, The Last Prisoner Project, which is working to bring people jailed for cannabis crimes home. This is a great conversation to start the new year off, especially in light of the news out of Illinois of Governor Pritzker expunging 11,000 cannabis-related criminal records. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our conversation with Ann, Lewis, Steve, and Andrew. Hey, Ann. Good morning. How Day are you? Day two. Oh, uh, a piece? Oh, Lewis, Lewis, Lewis. Oh. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah, I know. I've got a short cord here. And, uh, and the long attention fuse. span of a gnat. So. Yes, goldfish. <laughs> um, so this is a, a truly unique pleasure for me, and I know, I'm assuming for you. Absolutely. Um, we are sitting down with the brothers D'Angelo, Andrew, and Steve. Um, and, you know, most of our audience will know who you are, Steve. But uh, just some background, Steve is the founder of Harborside, um, the first medical cannabis dispensary in Northern California and all of California. We were one of the first six cannabis licensees in the entire country. And arguably the, um, you know, the, the, the father of the public cannabis markets and what has happened um, in terms of making cannabis um, as a medical and of adult use uh, product uh, mainstream. You know, you have really helped take it out of pure advocacy and into uh, a mix of ad- advocacy and commerce. Um, so thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, and Andrew, I don't know as much about your background. So why don't you tell us a little bit, you know, I can't do the same for you as what I did for your brother. Well, Steve and I have been working on cannabis law reform and entrepreneurial activity my entire adult life. Steve's 10 years older than me, so I had to go to school and grow up a little bit before I could jump on the train. And we had to start by changing laws. And then we started various different cannabis businesses. All of those businesses were designed to create a platform for us to carry the message of legalization and reform outward into the world and to create models to prove to the world that cannabis can bring benefits to communities and not harms. So Harborside was probably our most well-known effort along those lines, but we've had industrial hemp companies and we've had activist organizations and we've had you know, media companies too. So we do a lot of different things and I've been next to my brother the whole time and it's been great adventure. 
there is this underlying tension now uh, that we talk about all the time in the cannabis industry of the, the suits versus the stoners, right? You know, there has been a tremendous amount of institutional capital that has poured into the industry and people that look like me who are suit and tie people. And I know you're wearing a suit and tie, but that is not your your historic background in the space. But there is this tension, right, between those people who want to turn this into big business and those people who want to harken back to the advocacy roots that you guys have been part of, that SSDP, DPA, Normal, um, MPP, the, the, the real people who have made this into an industry and not just a movement. And a big issue that we're facing is the issues of social justice, social equity. Can you talk about what you guys are working on in that realm now? Sure. Um I uh, and my brother uh, launched a new advocacy organization about nine months ago called The Last Prisoner Project. And the object of The Last Prisoner Project uh, is very simple. It's to free every single cannabis prisoner on the planet. Um, And the inspiration for this came to us when we were... It was after California had passed uh, the proposition, so we knew that that adult use would be legal in 2018. In 2017, we were meeting with a lot of investment bankers, a lot of investors. We were finding ourselves, uh, at one point, I was in a very, very tall uh, skyscraper in in, in a conference room on the top floor with a very, very, very long table. And I'd been sitting around that table all day looking at figures, looking at spreadsheets, making plans for vast quantities of cannabis and and talking about creating intergenerational wealth. And everybody was feeling pretty good at the table by, you know, by we got to the middle or towards the end of the afternoon and my phone starts buzzing. And I looked down and normally I wouldn't I wouldn't jump up from a table like that to go take a call, but it was my buddy Chuck who was serving four years in prison in Pennsylvania for bringing 14 pounds of weed from California to, to Pennsylvania. And um, so I jumped out, I, I, I had a conversation with him and, um, and it, you know, like all my conversations with him, it, it, he's, just, he's, he's a very tough guy, right? But it was hard for me, probably maybe harder for me than it was for him. He was talking to me about how uh, he was feeling really bad because his mother, 78 years old, I didn't have anyone to shovel the snow for her, and it had just, it just snowed, right? So I go back into the, the conference room, and I'm just struck by the disparity in what is happening to my friend Chuck uh, for a small, tiny fraction of the amount of cannabis that we're talking about at the table. And I ask myself, how would I feel if I was sitting behind bars? Well, you have sat behind bars. Well, I have sat behind bars, but I wasn't sitting behind bars then. I was in a very nice conference table, right? And I was saying, gee, you know, because when I was behind bars, there wasn't a big, huge legal cannabis industry, okay? That, that's the difference, right? And so just imagine being in that situation today and seeing, you know, we're here at MJ Biz Conference today where there's thousands and thousands of people who are creating prosperity for their families, are building wealth. Uh, none of them, or virtually none of them, are worried about any kind of law enforcement activity, yet there are 40,000 plus people still in prison in the United States for doing exactly, exactly the same thing we are doing here. And 50 of them, 50 of them are there for life without parole, meaning they will die in prison 
if we collectively, the cannabis community, do not get them out. So what does your organization do exactly? So we, uh, uh, we are going to do a lot of different things, but what we are prioritizing as a new organization is a clemency initiative. In uh, cannabis legal states like California, like Colorado, like Illinois, like Massachusetts, uh, we believe that governors uh, should give clemency, executive clemency, to people who are in prison for something which is no longer a crime. And uh, the problem with clemency, the challenge with clemency, is that it's a highly political process because if the wrong prisoner is released and does something horrible, then the politician will pay the price at the polls. Right? And there's very few people in governor's offices who are assigned to go through what is usually an overwhelming amount of, of clemency petitions. So we hope to work with governor's offices, and we're in conversations with, with several offices now, to adopt a streamlined clemency approval process. Are, are you, are, are prisoners applying to you to, to, to the last prisoner project and say, please review my case and take, take this up? Is that part of what you are doing? Yeah, I mean, we get, we get people contacting us almost every single day How? about their cases. Uh, we have a big social media funnel, so we got a Can lot you, of folks. What is the handle? What is the website? Uh, lastprisonerproject.org. Lastprisonerproject is the handle for our IG and Twitter accounts. We'll put a link in our show notes. Uh, please. Yes. You know, it takes a lot of resources to do this work. It's very hard, particularly clemency. is very complex. It's very politically risky for governors and other executive politicians to grant clemency. It's really, really risky for them. And these folks are risk averse. So it will take a lot of resources. And it's really two-way street. Some families reach out to us to help their member, their family members in prison. Other times we proactively go out and try to find uh, the cases that we want to represent. But going back, Lewis, you, you talked about the gulf between the stoners and the suits. I have worked very hard to bridge that gulf. I, I, I consider myself a bridge builder and a diplomat and I, I, I want to create one culture that we all are a part of and that we're working together collaboratively. And right now, we're having a hard time even talking to each other, being in the same room with each other. Last Prisoner Project is a great way for us to work together collaboratively on something that's not competitive between us, mm -hmm. something that's not going to threaten us, and can do a lot of good and can get people out of prison. So perhaps if we work together to get people out of prison, we can start to bridge that gulf gulf between the stoners and the, the suits because that conflict that you mentioned is something that's really bothering Steve and I. We don't like to see that happening. It bothers, so. it bothers the institutional capital as well. It's not like these people are coming into the space and saying, all I care about is making money. They do care about these issues. Um, and, you know, having built Harborside, you know, you know, the analogy that we are told constantly is, Building these companies is, is akin to flying a plane while building it at the same time. And last night, Ann and I were at the taping of Marijuana Today's annual, like, everybody gets on the show. Um, and it was all the historic advocates, the ones that you guys know, the, the Dan Gold, the Dan, Grassroots Goldman, the, the Chris Cranes of the world. Um, and there was a, a conversation about how a large part of the, the for-profit cannabis industry has not built corporate social responsibility into their DNA at the outset. And that, you know, we work with a lot of these companies and there is not an individual company that we have, that we work with. And we work with about 45, 
for-profit cannabis companies that we don't talk to them about building this into their DNA. Um, and it, we know it's important. Yeah, look, um, it, one of the reasons that there's tension is because the traditional underground cannabis folks feel like, like we have carried the burden of fighting prohibition and living under it. And a lot of us have had very horrible things happen to us and our families. We've lost homes, we've lost our, our, our wealth, our net worth, our vehicles, our children have been taken away from Freedom. us, we've been imprisoned, right? And, and there is a sense when you've gone through something like that, when new folks jump in who have not made those same sacrifices, who are maybe in a superior position to benefit financially from this new industry, um, it becomes it becomes emotionally difficult uh, for folks. So I think that you know one of the my brother's right, Andrew's right that one of the great things that the Last Prisoner Project can do is uh, catalyze a process of reconciliation. Right? If the new corporate cannabis world can make a demonstration, not with words but with actions, that it that it really respects the work and the lives of the people who carry this plant through prohibition, then support the Last Prisoner Project and help us get our brothers and sisters out of jail. We have a few really great ways that, that almost any company can do it. So for a commitment of $1,000 a month, a company can get the Last Prisoner Project seal and they can put that on whatever their product is that they do and they can, and they can display that uh, seal widely. We're just unrolling that pro program now, so Ocean Grown Extracts is joining that program. Um, uh, we have a couple of other companies that are very close to making uh, those commitments. And, uh, and that seal will serve as a signal to consumers, so that consumers also will be able to support this effort. For larger companies, uh, we are seeking a you know donors for some named programs. So a Harvest uh, came to the table and has made a very substantial commitment to fund our re-entry retraining program, which is going to give uh, formerly incarcerated and hopefully even people who are still incarcerated training in the legal cannabis industry, uh, both entrepreneurial training and job training. So when they come out, they can participate in in the industry. Uh, that's uh, a named program. There's a commitment of several hundred thousand dollars that's required for those kinds of programs. Um, but but um, uh, we are seeking uh, a company to step up to the plate for this clemency program that I just described, which we believe is the r most rapid way to get the largest number of people out of prison with the least amount of dollars. I think what you just talked about was really interesting that um Getting people out of prison is one thing, but also re-entering them into society is something totally different. And 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 people with records historically have a really hard time finding employment. Are you seeing more and more cannabis companies opening their arms to um, to people who have records and who you know maybe spent some time in jail? We're just starting to see that now. That education is starting to land, and people are starting to get woke to that a little yeah. bit more. But. The power of, of some of these programs my brother just described, if we could just get 100 companies, just 100 companies to do the $1,000 a month, that's $100,000 a month, that's $1.2 million a year. What we could do to get people out of prison if just 100 companies step up for $1,000 a month, that is so significant. And those 100 companies, we would celebrate LPP, Last Prisoner Project, would celebrate those companies. Those companies would be able to represent LPP on their packaging, their products, in their shops. And we could start 
really weaponizing this conversation in society of just this restorative justice that we all must engage in. It is very traumatic to go to prison. You lose a lot of skills. You get corrupted by the imprisonment system. You, you get develop PTSD in prison. Oh, yeah. absolutely. You, know, you get cut off from your family. You don't develop new skills, generally speaking, and it's very hard to re-enter. Get a job, right, of course, but then just find housing. Just be able to know what a smartphone is if you've been locked up for longer than smartphones have been around. I mean, just imagine how difficult that would be for the smartest and most resourceful of us. And most of these folks are not as resourceful. And that's one reason they're in prison in the first place. They couldn't afford really good legal representation. This is the issue that, that, that stopped New York and New Jersey's uh, adult use legislation was the issue around expungement. You know, clemency is looking back and saying, okay, we didn't set the laws up right to begin with. So California does not have an expungement system. Oregon, Washington State don't have expungement. New Jersey said, we're not doing this until we get expungement, um, which is both good and bad. It's good from the fact that when the system is put into place, the, you know, those thousands of, of, of people who are in state penitentiaries in, in New Jersey will get out and have their records expunged. But clemency is a much harder thing. And if you look back you know, at the, the federal level, when the president grants, grants clemency, it's big news. So for a governor to do this, it takes an unbelievable amount of political will. Is part of what you guys do are doing, um, you know, grassroots lobbying at the state level? Are you talking to the, the advocates, uh, the cannabis advocates, to, to, to have them talk to state senators, state assembly people about clemency? Is that part of what you're doing? Yeah, it is. It's it's very much a a part of what we are doing is building that level of political support that's going to be necessary to carry the to carry that effort forward. Um, you know, we we think that it actually is fairly achievable uh, because we have governors in several states who are strongly pro cannabis reform. Jared Polis. Jared Polis in Colorado, uh, Pritzker, um, uh, even Newsom, uh, and, and and Phil Murphy. Right. So, you know, we we think that we think that there there is we do think that that there's that there's a good possibility of making that happen. But, you know, there are these roadblocks. So, in, you know, in a governor's office, there's typically one or two people who reviews clemency petitions and it, it takes a long time for them to do that. Have you put their names on your site so that people can email them directly? Hint, hint. Um, I, that's a, a great suggestion, and we'll make sure to pass that on to the folks who, who are building the website. And, you know, your listeners, as you do your political work at the local level, wherever your businesses happen to be located, carry that message, you know. Let folks know that expungement, if it's not in the law in a particular location or state, let's get it in the law. Um, if, and let's make sure that cannabis prisoners and cannabis people with records for cannabis crimes are expunged and let's make that a priority and the more that all of us carry that message as we do our political work and and meet with our political stakeholders the more that'll sink in and we'll be able to get this job done can we can we pivot to the public markets a little bit you know because I know we have very little time with you Steve and and you know you know you have seen this industry grow from you know a seed into a beautiful canopy with awesome flowers that everybody's smoking 
when you look at what's happening in Canada with, with the LPs and when you're looking here in um, the U.S., what's happening? Why, why are we in such a uh, uh, fucked up place? Well, there's a couple of things that are going on, uh, and they unfortunately occurred simultaneously in extremely large markets. So, uh, you know, what we've seen in Canada with the public markets was really fairly predictable and expected from our point of view. Um, we didn't know exactly what the timing was, but when we first started seeing pitches from Canadians, uh, companies that were going on to the public markets, they were talking about this concept called fully funded capacity. Now, I don't come from a corporate background or an investment background, so when I saw the term, I thought it was a, a, a term of art. And so I went to my CFO and I said, Derek, what's fully funded capacity mean? Because everything in the plan was dependent on this fully funded capacity, right? That was their metric. And, and, and he looked at me quizzically and he didn't have an answer and, and he said, I could guess, but it's not a term of art. So I was shocked to find out what fully funded capacity meant. It, you know, it meant that if you got all of the money that you were seeking and you executed perfectly on your plan, then this is what the outcome was going to be, right? And I knew that these plans were written by people who had no cannabis experience, um, who didn't understand what they were taking on, who were writing plans for extremely large-scale cultivation, which has never happened in, in the modern era with cannabis because it's been illegal. So we never really believed that those kinds of super rosy projections were ever actually going to be realized on the ground. One of the things that has happened um, is that we're now seeing a correction uh, as the real on the ground results of these companies are coming in. Investors are finding out that there's a large gap between the promises that were made and what the reality is. And, you know, I think that, that that's uh, that that's not a surprise to those of us who have been who have been watching the space for for a long, long time. Uh, you had people who really understood the public markets and how to create large valuations, but didn't understand very much about cannabis. I think that, that, that what we are going to see as the markets recover, and they absolutely will recover, okay, people have been consuming cannabis for thousands of years. As long as we are human beings and we have endocannabinoid systems, we will be consuming it. So this, this gets worked out. The way that it gets worked out, the real winners and the next phase of growth in the market are going to be companies that have proven operational track records who can actually grow good cannabis, create good products, sell them, and do it in an efficient and profitable way and be able to demonstrate that with their financials. Just like Harborside. Yeah, corrections are not always unhealthy and traumatic. I know a lot of your listeners have probably lost some money we certainly have lost some value also, but what goes down must come up. And, and the healthy aspects of a correction is it forces us to focus. It means we have to do more with less. And it means we have to execute in a really good, excellent way. And um, those are healthy things for businesses. Those are healthy things for, for groups. And as my brother just alluded to, Harborside, we're focusing on those fundamentals right now. Can we grow more good cannabis this quarter than we did last quarter? Can we open up one or two more shops? We just opened our third shop in Where? Desert Hot Springs. Oh, Desert uh, Hot Springs. And cool. it has a drive-through, one of the only drive-throughs in <laughs> California. Nice. So we're excited about that. And, and, and good, a little growth, right? It's not going to be a hockey stick. 
it's going to be a little bit of authentic growth. And we grind it out until the constraints in the market, whether it be the local bands or the high taxes or not enough dispensaries or not enough retail, until we can balance some of those imbalances out. And hopefully this correction will allow us to give us the focus to do that. So let me just jump in here because I, I will have to jump out in just a second. But but that that market correction is one of the of, is one of the, the the factors that's happened, right? The other thing that's happened simultaneously is that you have the state of California, the largest legal cannabis market in the world, in theory, right, um, is suffering from serious uh, misregulation and overtaxation. And the overtaxation and the overregulation has led to a situation where, on the one hand, you have consumers who are going into legal licensed cannabis dispensaries and suffering sticker shock because there's a 40% tax rate. They run out of the dispensaries and right into the arms of thousands of growers who have been unable to get licensed because the licensing requirements at the state level are simply too demanding. And so naturally these two groups of people have gotten together and, and they're creating a mutually beneficial ecosystem. Until the state of California uses some simple market dynamics to address this situation, there's going to be challenges. What can the state do? One really simple thing they could do is declare a two-year tax holiday on all cannabis taxes. Give us a chance. You want to bring people from the illicit market into the legal market, then make it possible for us to support our families, right? Give us a fighting chance. Uh, don't push us into the abyss. Give us a helping hand up. And on the regulatory side, there are just some pretty absurd things. Right now, some regulators in California are talking about, you know, putting a warning label on everything about reproductive health and cannabis, despite the fact that there's no science. There's no research. There's no should. science or research to indicate yeah. that. But the cost of businesses to put yet another warning on yet another label on all of our packaging and comply at a certain date that's going to be set by bureaucrats and regulators without any knowledge of what that means to our packaging supply chains is very disruptive to us and that's just on the regulatory side so we've heard about taxes and we've heard about regulation it's, it's it's just we have a lot of work to do in california on the political side and i hope everyone will join me and ccia and other groups to do that our thanks to steve and andy d'angelo for joining us at the 2019 mj bizcon um what a fantastic conversation. If you want to find them, you can find them at lastprisonerproject.org. As always, thank you so much for listening. 2019 was an amazing year. 2020 is even going to be better. If you want, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore green rush or on Instagram at the green rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at greenrush at KCSA. We are always looking for feedback, guest ideas, questions. Hey, hate mail, bring it. Donald Trump sucks. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. And as always, that's one take, Shay. One motherfucking take. <laughs>